0: and welcome to the fourth episode in our Destination Zero podcast series with me, James Murray, editor of Business Green. This is the first part of two deep dives that we're going to be undertaking into the innovative technologies that could be pivotal to delivering net zero emissions by 2050. Now, we're all familiar with renewable technologies from wind farms to solar panels and the like. However, independent experts, including the International Energy Agency and the UK's Committee on Climate Change, have repeatedly said that other solutions are going to be needed. Solutions such as carbon capture and storage and hydrogen are likely to play a key part, especially in decarbonising sectors like heavy industry, heating and large transport operations such as HGVs, buses and potentially even ships and aircraft. In today's episode, we're focusing on carbon capture and storage, or as it's more commonly known, CCS. To find out more, I spoke to two experts who are playing an important role in deploying CCS technology in areas such as the Humber in the northeast of England. Torbjörg Fossum is Equinor's Vice President of CCUS, which stands for Carbon Capture Utilisation and Storage, and Peter McFadzian is Equinor's CCUS lead for the northeast of England. Let's start with first principles. For, for those who don't know, what is CCS?
1: To explain that very simple, it is uh, a climate mitigating tool and it's about capturing CO2 from the emission source and then store it deep into the ground. And by doing that, uh, you prevent the CO2 to reach the atmosphere and then contribute to limit global warming.
0: So maybe just take me back to my my sort of high school chemistry classes. I mean, how do you actually go about capturing a gas? I mean, people aren't standing at the top of the chimney with nets, are they? What's What's the process here?
2: Broadly speaking, what you're looking at doing is you are using the most common method, and there are several, but the most common method is to use a solvent, which the CO2 is effectively absorbed into. So you capture the CO2 that way, and then subsequently you effectively regenerate that solvent, separate the CO2 from the solvent, and then you've got your pure CO2 stream for export and storage. And, of course, your emissions have that CO2 directly removed from them. As mentioned, there are several methods, but the most common is with a solvent uh, or a sorbent, indeed, whether you've got a liquid or a solid uh, uh, um, solution.
0: And how effective are these chemical reactions? Because one of the other critiques of CCS has been, you know, how much are you capturing? What percentage of the emissions are you actually stopping? Getting out into the atmosphere, given to given, we're aiming for as close to zero as possible.
1: Yeah, they can actually uh, capture uh, very high capture rates. So uh, the projects that we are developing in, in Equinor are always targeting more than ninety five percent capture rates. So that's uh, that's fully achievable.
0: And how established is this technology? Because one of the common criticisms you hear of it is that this is this is nascent. This isn't proven. Um, you know, some people just say you know it's higher risk than some of the more established clean technologies we have. Uh, I mean, what's your what's your take on on those those common arguments?
2: Yes, good question, James. So, on the Norwegian continental shelf, uh, there is a project which is known as Sleipner. Um, at the Sleipner project, where we have been as Equinor injecting carbon dioxide into the subsurface for long-term geological storage for the past 25 years. Now, that's one example, and we know that we can do that safely for for several reasons. Um, One of the key reasons is that we do very careful monitoring of the behaviour of that carbon dioxide in the subsurface. A principal method is what we call a geophysical method. Um, what I mean by that, for those of your listeners who don't have a specialist background, is that we are sailing with vessels Uh, above the location of the subsurface store, and we are sending sound waves down through the water, through the geological formations, all the way down to this deep subsurface store. Those sound waves are then reflecting back up and we record them. And Within the information contained within that recording, we are able to ascertain where the CO2 is stored within those geological formations and indeed confirm in a time-lapse sense, over that 25-year period, that that CO2 has been contained safely within the subsurface store. There has been no leakage of that CO2 to the seabed. And, of course, we also have an obligation, you know, whether in Norway or the UK or anywhere else, where you're doing carbon capture and storage, to demonstrate to the regulator you know, that you have that containment, that the CO2 is staying where you said it was going to stay, and so we have, uh, as I say, a quarter of century of proof that we can do exactly that. And it's very much regarded as proven safe technology that now has the potential to expand globally uh, and make a significant net zero contribution in so doing.
0: And, and one of the alternatives we're hearing from to storage now is um, people adding the letter U to CCS. So CCUS, Carbon Capture, Utilisation and, and Storage. Um Again, could you just maybe give give the listener a, a bit of detail on, on what that entails and, and why it could potentially be so important to this this fledgling sector?
1: Yeah, the utilisation part is uh, is important. Uh, it means that you can actually use the CO two to something, uh, but uh, it has to be. We we need to be mindful that that is a, a possibility, uh, but it doesn't remove the need for also storing CO two. Because the amount of CO2 storage that is required is is very significant. Uh, But still, there are some areas where we can actually use the CO2 to something. It could be used in in cement, actually to produce cement. It could be used to make fuels. But then we have to be mindful that the CO2 is emitted to the air again after the fuel is used.
0: How do you see this progressing then? Because obviously, again, the CCS, as you mentioned, has been around for some time. You know, you'd argue it's a mature technology, it exists, and yet it's still on the global scale, very, very small um, and and often struggling to get these projects built. Um, I mean, what needs to happen to actually start to deliver those industrial hubs that, that you'd argue are essential to the transition?
1: Yeah, so it, it does require a, a very close uh, uh, collaboration with governments and industry to make this happen. Because as you point to today, uh, you know, it, it isn't the technology that is the barrier, it's a commercial gap. So today, it costs more to implement CCS than it costs to pay the taxes for emitting CO2. So for the first projects, there is, you know, there is this commercial gap that needs to be closed. But we believe that uh, this gap will uh, will be reduced and closed towards perhaps 2030, and that is because the cost of emitting CO2 is really increasing. We see that today. Uh, also, and then also, the cost of CCS will come down as a consequence of industrialization, economy of scale, and technology improvement. So, to close that gap, uh, we need to work together, industry and governments, um, and find the solutions to to make sure that we can realize these first and pioneering projects that needs to pave the way for the commercial market
0: so we have this technology we have this potential and yet i mean it's fair to say the sector hasn't grown as fast as some other clean technologies um over the last decade and you know we've seen the boom in the renewables market more more and more progress in smart grids and electric vehicles and the like and yet carbon capture and storage is still a relatively small sector why do you think that is and what's needed to to now as you say given we have the technology to start to deploy it at scale
2: i think primarily what you need is progressive political support in order to bring carbon and capture carbon capture and storage up to the commercial scale that the world requires it to be at. you know and I think the UK and Norway are both great examples of this whereby you have governments putting very substantial financial support behind uh, CCS projects and designing business models that enable companies such as the company I work for, to have the investment confidence to execute these projects, which ultimately cost billions of pounds, for example, if I use the Northern Endurance Partnership as an example. So these are huge investments that require state support to to, to really get the industry growing. And then in the fullness of time, for example, as the carbon uh, emissions trading schemes become more globally mature, you can get to a point where this business can survive in, a, in an unregulated sense as well. But of course, that's to happen in the fullness of time. We've seen, for example, the way the offshore wind industry has grown through initial subsidies to become much more profitable and competitive with time. And we would expect carbon capture and storage in many ways to, to follow a similar trajectory to that.
0: Is there a sense then that carbon pricing policies are absolutely key here? Because Because without those presumably it would just always be more expensive to to capture the carbon. Without those, you could just emit the carbon and that would be the cheaper option. Uh, is it right to say that sort of CCS deployment will ultimately in some ways go hand in hand with getting a, a higher and more credible price on the carbon that industrial plants and power plants emit?
1: Yeah, I would definitely say so. And there is another factor as well, and that is that um, we do see a potential for a market for low carbon products. Uh so, I mean, if you, are, uh, if you are, for example, a steel producer or a cement producer, uh, if you decide that you want to sell clean steel or clean cement, the cost of your steel will increase quite significantly. But if you look at the end product where the cement or the steel ends up, the cost of that product will only increase one to two percentage so I can take an example I find quite illustrating if you if you um, if you if you w- would like to move to uh, to sell low carbon steel that you will then see a material cost on steel increase as much as fifty percent as an example uh, but then the steel material goes into an end product which could be a car and and if you use one ton of steel at a fifty percent higher cost this will translate into an increase of the car of 200 euros only mm-hmm. and I mean, I mean if you if you look at the uh, at the um, customers today for cars they are willing to pay more for another color on the car they are willing to pay more for leather leather seats and i, I certainly think that there are uh, customers that wants to, to 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 pay a little bit more to make sure that the, the, that the car is um, uh, produced from clean material so we do expect also that market to grow
0: and you've heard this argument it's quite widespread that we don't want to be increasingly um reliant on gas at a time when gas prices are very volatile so you know some people have suggested ccs is, is if it has a role to play it'll be a small one and others have argued we don't need it at all uh, i mean as somebody who works in the sector i mean what's your response to that that argument that yeah that that we don't necessarily need this technology to get to net zero?
2: Well, the first thing I would say is if you look at neutral observers, for example, the International Energy Agency and the scientific consensus surrounding their reports, is that everybody um, is off the view that CCS is an essential uh, uh, component in your toolkit in order to get to net zero. And I'll explain some of the, the reasons for that if I may, James. We talk about industrial decarbonisation at scale. When we're talking about that, oftentimes we're talking about the so-called hard-to-abate sectors. Now, these are sectors which require a lot of heat to function. Examples are power stations, they might be steel plants, they might be cement plants. So in order that society doesn't grind to a halt, we all know we need to continue producing uh, steel, cement power. these industries need a mechanism to survive, and the mechanism to to uh, to make these industries compatible with a net zero future is, is to capture their emissions and store them over the long term, geologically speaking. So that enable that enables those industries, it enables society to keep progressing.
0: There's at least three options here for carbon capture and storage. There's there's that industrial decarbonisation, direct decarbonisation of those industries. Uh, there's there's sort of into backing up the grid a little bit and providing a bit more resiliency to the grid through some power plants and then also you have this hydrogen production option so whatever the mix is you're likely to need it somewhere would be the view
2: absolutely and if you truly want to get to net nets you you need to start looking at technologies like for example direct air capture or indeed bex whereby you're burning sustainable uh, uh, fuel stock and, and then capturing the emissions So. Um CCS has a role to play also in, in that aspect. So that is really sucking. You know, the, the easiest example to use is direct air capture. You know, you're sucking the CO2 out of air and and sequestering it. So, so you're really, to make those final percentage contributions on the way down to net zero, you also need to be looking at that in addition to the elements that I mentioned earlier. Uh, so what's the...
0: What's the sort of the investment case there? What's the, what's the argument for doing it this way around these, the, these clusters and, and these, these specific regions?
2: Doing carbon capture and storage, as we've mentioned, is it's not a cheap business. So you want to make sure that you're getting the maximum bang for your buck, particularly when you're in a partially state subsidized environment. Mm-hmm. The best way to get a good bang for your buck when you're doing carbon capture and storage is to have your subsurface store within pipeline range of large quantities of onshore industrial emissions. So that allows you to really kind of realize these economies of scale. So the beauty of the Northern Endurance Partnership, which is the one of the projects that I work on, operated by BP Equinor, a key partner, and we have possessions in the associated storage licenses. One of the beauties of that is that you have a dual CO2 pipeline system that's taking you from the Teesside industrial region and the Humber side industrial region, capturing, holistically speaking, up to 50% of the UK's industrial CO2 emissions, exporting those via this dual pipeline system to a, to a store in the southern North Sea, more than a kilometre beneath the seabed, with superb reservoir qualities and indeed superb sealing formations Above that reservoir, so what we have there is we have a world-class concept for for decarbonising, as I say, up to 50% of the UK's emissions. Um, that kind of scale of project uh, is unique globally at present.
0: Next, I spoke to two leading figures who have played a really important role in the CCS debate over the last few years. Alex Cunningham MP, represents a traditional industrial region in the northeast of England and is also chair of the all-party parliamentary group on CCS, while Ruth Herbert is the CEO of the Carbon Capture and Storage Association. I started by asking them, why this technology is so important for regions such as Teesside and the Humber.
3: Well, I got very excited about CCS about seven or eight years ago when Judith Shapiro uh, from the CCS Association came to talk to me about it. And I realised straight away that this could be a real opportunity for Teesside. Sadly, it's taken us eight years to get to the point where uh, something really appears to be happening. But the reason it's so important to us on Teesside and on Humber side is because we have high emissions in these areas. We have who are paying high carbon costs uh, because of the emissions, and yet, you know, they're keen uh, to get involved in the project list to help drive down their costs and, uh, you know, clean up the atmosphere at the same time. But the great extension to this, or several extensions, really, the great extension is that other organisations which, where their processes actually result in emissions, could end up coming to Humberside or Teesside because they could, be, they could come carbon capture-ready, and uh, they could set up their new complexes and feed the carbon straight into the new system and get it buried down uh, under, the, uh, under the North Sea. And uh, they would make uh, considerable cost savings by producing their materials on Teesside or Humberside rather than somewhere else in the country.
0: What is needed? to build that business case and, and, and get that support from government that will allow, you know, as I say, this really wide range of projects in two or three regions across the UK um, to actually start making final investment decisions and get get building?
4: Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's a, it's a couple of things. Um, I just wanted to reflect briefly on the point about what has changed. I think what has changed is the government's commitment to net zero by 2050, uh, and also the net zero strategy um, following on from the 10-point plan that um, that was issued in, in November last year. The, the net zero strategy sets out the role of CCUS in uh, achieving net zero by 2050 and some really kind of challenging targets. Um, so, uh, we really welcome the increased ambition uh, of 20 to 30 million tonnes a year being stored by 2030, rising to 50 million tonnes a year being stored by 2035. Um, This really shows the vital role CCUS will play. Where we are at the moment, obviously, is two two clusters have been announced as moving forward now. And what's really critical for those clusters is um, clarity on all the detail of the business models, which are going to support Uh, those projects to make their final investment decision. So at the moment, there's the regulated um, asset model for the transport and storage infrastructure. And as Alex said, that that needs to come first. um, So that that infrastructure is there to take away the CO2, Um, but in parallel, uh, the government is also running a competition, which is open at the moment for phase two projects. uh, So further emitter projects to apply to connect to those clusters later in the decade. So, uh, it's both clarity on the detailed risk-reward structure for the transport storage infrastructure, which is basically the the backbone for for this, but also clarity for the emitters on how they will recoup the additional costs of operating with carbon capture. Why do you
0: think that maybe CCS has struggled to make this progress sooner uh, you know we've we've seen a kind of revolution in renewables globally we're seeing rapid change now in the electric vehicle market
3: yeah, I mean, that's, I think that's a great question, and uh, you know, the CCS Association uh, were banging the drum on this, uh, you know, o- well over a decade ago, uh, trying to make uh, policymakers sit up and take note. And but I, I think we got to a point where you know we were hurtling towards, and I know 2050 is a long way away, and I'll be 95 that year, but uh, it's a long way away. But it's a very real target if we're actually going to achieve what we need to achieve for the health of. Our world, and never mind the the health of our nation. And I think uh, organisations, including government, have actually sat up, uh, stood up, and, and looked in and said goodness me, we need to do something. And they started to look across a much wider uh, range of opportunities. So they've looked beyond wind, beyond solar, beyond nuclear, and decided, well, what else can we do? And all of a sudden, oh, yes, there's that matter of uh, CCS or CCUS, call it what you will, and recognise that, uh, you know, it does have a role to play. There's
0: widespread concerns about the net zero transition and potentially a skills gap. Uh, you know, the UK's is slightly notorious for arguably not delivering STEM skills and kind of the technical and engineering skills we need for projects like this at the scale that's necessary. Um, I mean, what can policymakers do to uh, both at the local level and the national level, really, to, to, uh, to ensure that if we do start to build these projects, that the, the skills are there to fill the jobs that will be created?
3: Well I mean I've been briefed by by many of the organisations involved they have their own skills plan they just want to be able to work in partnership with colleges, universities and government in order to deliver the uh, the skills that are actually needed but I personally I have great confidence in British engineering and uh, what they can achieve here. I worked in the gas industry albeit in uh, a public affairs, public relations uh, role but uh, I witnessed the, the start of uh, offshore uh, gas storage and that's when we used to transport gas from the North North Sea down through the national grid, and out to Humberside, out to Easington, in fact, out into the rough gas field. Uh, sadly, that uh, that storage has been lost in recent times. But it's with, with the same technologies, it's the same as pipeline systems, it's uh, injection systems, it's storage systems. We can do it all already. And uh, it's, we're just using a very different product. And uh, I'm quite confident that, uh, that we can achieve that uh, going forward, because, you know, we, we're great innovators in this Country, but even here, we don't actually need a great level of innovation beyond what we can already do.
0: One of the sort of other critiques of CCS that you hear quite a lot, particularly again from environmental groups and, 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 and some within business as well who work on kind of other forms of clean technology, is that there's a, there's a concern that CCS could be used almost as a cover for continued investment in fossil fuel infrastructure at a time when we obviously need to be decarbonizing and, and scaling that back. Um, that, that we're kind of encouraging more investment in, in exploration when these technologies still haven't, are yet to be deployed. I think
4: we've got to get our heads around the fact that that yes, those people currently are employed and, and, and are working for fossil fuels industries who, you know, have you know are, have been criticised. But I think I think if you think about, I mean, when I go to talk with say developing countries and other countries that are looking at how to put together their national decarbonisation plans, Um, they're realising more and more that they're going to need CCS as well um, for for decarbonising the heavy industry and other things. And they've got to phase down fossil fuels and they're looking at how to do that. And CCS is, is part of that.
0: How big is the potential economic upside if you get this right. And how important is it that these projects are located in regions that, you know, have had economic challenges in the past, have had deindustrialization previously and, and sort of some of the, the economic and, and, and job impacts that have gone with that. It, it strikes that done right, this is a huge multi-decadal opportunity to potentially, you know, revitalise parts of the UK that, that need that increased economic activity.
3: Well, it is, but I mean, it's not a political decision to go for Humber and Teesside. It's a decision based on fact. And Ruth mentioned early on in our conversation the fact that, you know, 50% of the uh, the emissions are actually within those two parts of the north north of England. And uh, so we, we've got to be able to deal with that. So going forward, we, we just need to, you know, understand how how we can drive, uh, you know, th- this particular project and recognise that there is some sort of levelling up I don't know what levelling up means I'm, I'm still trying to find out for me levelling up is about health it's about local council services it's about uh, infrastructure it's about all manner of things not just uh, you know what happens with industry and jobs it's much much wider than that but for me if the government are going to get this right they've got to come up with this, this business model in order to make sure that uh, the investment goes to the right place at the right time
4: We did a study uh, last year that uh, effectively, uh, with with Afri and Cambridge Econometrics, which said that we, you know, the opportunities here for kind of jobs is sort of fifty thousand jobs that um, I think would otherwise be at risk if we didn't if we didn't provide a net zero solution for these these industrial regions, um, because uh, unfortunately um, these are highly competitive international sector steel, cement, and so forth. And if we didn't actually provide uh, the, the, the low carbon infrastructure for them, the, the jobs would be at risk. And then there's potential for job creation as well, as you say, in all the new uh, spin-off opportunities from this infrastructure.
0: Well, I hope that if you hadn't heard of CCS or CCUS or didn't know much about it, then the last 25 minutes have been illuminating. It's a really fascinating technology with huge potential to cut carbon emissions in the UK and around the world. So a huge thanks to my guests, Torborg Fossum, Peter McFadden, Alex Cunningham MP, and Ruth Herbert for their insights and conversation. Join me next time for our second deep dive into another technology that will likely be needed to achieve net zero emissions by 2050. Yes, we're going to be looking at hydrogen and discussing the role it can play in driving down emissions, especially in those sectors that have proved hard to decarbonise to date. Thanks again for listening and hope to see you soon.